Hi, it's Tom here, one third of the Spike podcast. And before we get into this week's episode, I just want to say a huge thank you to all of our listeners, all of our readers who so generously donate to us, either monthly or whenever you can. It's really, really appreciated. Spike is free. We want to keep it that way. And donations are a great way to help us do that. So if you already give, thank you very much. And if you don't, please do consider giving us a donation. It's really easy. Just go to spiked-online.com, click the donate button in the top right of the homepage and fill in your details. Thanks so much. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week, I have Spiked's editor, Brendan O'Neill. Hello. And Spiked's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hi. Coming up on the show, Ireland and the EU the woke royals and trans kids. The UK's Brexit crisis is escalating as the European Union rejects Prime Minister Boris Johnson's push for a new deal. Boris Johnson has said he won't talk to the Irish and he won't talk to the EU until they accept that they're going to give up the backstop. The backstop is dead. It's got to go. As each day passes with no agreement, the threat and the menace of a hard border becomes all the more real. Ireland has become central to the Brexit negotiations between the UK and the EU. The desire to avoid a hard border between the Republic and the North has complicated the negotiations and is used to justify the most hated part of Theresa May's withdrawal agreement, the Irish border backstop. Throughout the process, the EU has tried to give the impression that it is standing behind Ireland and that it is prioritising Ireland's interests. Brendan, is that really the case? No, not at all. I think uh, uh, the European Union is using Ireland as a kind of battering ram against the whole idea of Brexit and against, by extension, British democracy. And it's so explicit. I mean, there is really no border issue at all when you get down to it. I mean, there are so many, if there were to have to be a so-called hardening of the border, there are so many ways that can be done without involving infrastructure or soldiers or any of these other kind of nightmare scenarios that are depicted. Um, So it's a it's been blown completely out of proportion and it's been blown out of proportion for the very cynical end of depicting Brexit as something that's just not possible or is very difficult. And, you know, the point of the backstop, which is why it's so hated by Brexiteers, is that at some point in the future, we may have to keep Northern Ireland in single market or customs unions arrangements and other parts of the UK too, just to be on the safe side. And so it's a form of political blackmail that is used to undermine Brexit. And I think that's an incredibly dangerous thing. It's very destructive to Anglo-Irish relations Mm. because it is using Ireland against Britain. And I think that's divisive and destructive. Tom? Well, I think what's interesting as well to sort of notice is that the backstop, as you say, has become kind of central to the Brexit negotiations. But when this week, when Varadkar talking about the backstop and why he wasn't prepared to suggest to the EU that they should reopen the withdrawal agreement, that they would effectively have talks with Boris Johnson taking his red that the backstop had to go, he said that the backstop was necessary as a consequence of decisions taken in the UK. Mm. And he's kind of got a bit of a point there. Now, the argument that people from both Brussels and Dublin have been making that effectively you can't really um, maintain the existing border as it is whilst leaving the EU properly. Like you have to be in some sort of customs union and single market relationship to do that. I don't think that's true. But he's 100% right in saying that the deadlock that is ensued as a result of the backstop is largely down to the incompetence and the terrible decisions of Theresa May's administration. I think when this first kind of reared its head was back in December 2017, where May's government very much kind of bruised from um, the general election result and really wanting to show that they were making some sort of progress, um, signed up to the original version of the backstop, the Northern Ireland only backstop, 
um, basically made it quite clear later on that they signed up to it not really knowing what it meant, claiming mm. it was just EU fudge when it was um, far from that, not actually putting out a legal interpretation of it. So it allowed for the EU lawyers to define what it meant. And then, because then obviously they get fire and brimstone back from Arlene Foster and the DUP, um, who recognise this as effectively an EU land grab of, of Northern Ireland, ripping it away from Britain. Um, she then had to be in a position where what she was arguing for and what was presented as this great coup was saying that the backstop would involve all of the United mm. Kingdom. So mm. it's worth remembering that this really is a product of um, British decisions. It is, as Boris says, a prison of our own construction. And that even this goes back to when the talks were started in the first place. You know, this is one thing that um, before the talks began, David Davis, then Brexit secretary, said that the row of the summer was going to be the sequencing of the talks because the way the EU wanted to do it was that you would solve the issue of the border, as they put it, um, and then we would move on later to trade, despite the fact it's trade that would effectively ameliorate the problems of the border. But again, May, um, just wanting to move on with things, bruised mm. by the general election, agreed to this staging of the talk. So I, com- I completely agree. The backstop has always been used as a means through which to effectively just thwart Brexit entirely or lead us to a Brexit, which, which would effectively keep us in the customs mm. union, you know, collecting tariff revenues for the EU in perpetuity, always being locked into those kinds of arrangements. But at the same time, it is very much a product of the ineptitude and the idiocy of the previous administration. I think it's worth bearing that in mind. You know, a great deal of the the fuss around um, the Irish border and, um, you know, questions around Ireland come from two different almost misreadings of, of history. One is to say, as, as you alluded to, this kind of political blackmail that if we erect any kind of border infrastructure, we will reignite huge tensions between Northern Ireland and, and the rest of Ireland. It's, it's a complete kind of inversion of history that sees basically the Irish civil war as the product of a border rather than a militarized border being the product of a war. So there's, so on, on that level, it's, it's a complete misreading of history. But then there's also the complete abandonment of the last 15 years of, um, Ireland EU relations, where we now assume that, well, if you listen to anyone, certainly from the Irish political class, you think that Irish EU relations have been totally rosy. Mm. The EU has been, you know, God's gift to Ireland effectively. When, if you look back and you think about the way that Irish people have voted over the years um, against various EU treaties, whether it's the Nice Treaty or even the Lisbon Treaty, which brought the current EU in into force, the the Irish were voting against these things way before Britain's Brexit revolt, and yet, of course, these votes were overturned. And then, if you think it wasn't even that long ago when effectively Irish economic policy was being dictated down the phone from Brussels, and Brussels was asking Ireland to make enormous cuts to public services in order to basically save the Irish economy. But there's this strange amnesia about all of these things that, that, that just doesn't even feature in the, in the debate. Uh, absolutely. And I think, I think Tom's absolutely right about the, um, where the backstop originates and how it originates in the kind of incapacity of our own political class to make good on Brexit or to, you know, be truthful to the vote to leave the European Union, which is why the backstop is, has become such a trump card among Remainers and the remoning political elite who, um, have no qualms whatsoever about using the spectre of violence in Ireland as a means of undermining democracy in the UK because they are that cynical and that sinister, in fact. And I completely agree, Fraser, that it just uh, erases history or rewrites history, some of these arguments that are coming out. There's also a huge amount of prejudice, I think, in the idea that any change to the border in Ireland will propel the people in that country back into a viol- their violent past. And, you know, it's often said that Tory Brexiteers are 
uh, are kind of anti-Irish and full of anti-Irish racism. But I hear far more anti-Irish prejudice in that argument from mm. the Remainer cliques, because what they're effectively saying is that the Irish have this propensity for violence and are given to behaving like maniacs. And it's only British arrangements or European Union arrangements that really keep them at peace. It's ahistorical and it is quite prejudiced. Um, I think the, the, the key thing is the, the way in which all of this stuff, uh, whether it's steered by the British political elite or, or by Varadkar himself, the Taoiseach, or by Brussels officials, it's all geared towards depicting Brexit as something that just can't be done. Um, or they say we have to have a soft Brexit, which of course means no Brexit. Um, and that's the overarching motive of the whole backstop argument and the whole use of Ireland against Brexit. And it's, it's deeply, deeply cynical. And you're absolutely right. The idea that the EU is a friend of Ireland is laughable. I mean, they treat Ireland like a colony, and they have done over the past 15 years in particular. Um, and they will have no concerns about doing mm. so again when push comes to shove, and that will happen quite soon. But, you know, even when the Troika were there in Ireland in 2010, dictating economic policy to Ireland's own elected ministers, uh, back then, Irish journalists and Irish commentators were arguing that the EU was colonising Ireland and was attacking Irish sovereignty. So the fact that they have turned so much against their own arguments and are now lining up behind the European Union is actually a really depressing spectacle. It's so incredibly short-sighted as well, because mm. if you see some of the messages coming out of the Commission over the past couple of weeks and months, it's quite clear that... Um, in the offing is some sort of harmonisation on tax policy as well. Mm. And, you know, the Irish um, economy is heavily reliant on its 12.5% corporation tax level. And yet um, Ursula von der Leyen, now the president of the European Commission, again signalled her intention to get rid of um, the veto on relation to tax affairs, which would basically, you know, really sink Ireland in the near term. The idea that, you know, having, despite the fact they've thrown their lot in with the EU, despite the fact the EU are really trying to use um, the way in which they're dealing with the Irish issue is a way to demonstrate that we look out for our little guy member states, despite the fact I think a mm. lot of people in Greece would find that hard to believe. <laughs> it's quite clear that they're going to get shafted some way down the line. It's it's ridiculous to assume that everything's going to be fine now for, for Ireland and the EU, that they've kind of proved themselves throughout this process, which does reek a little bit of that from Varadkar in particular. But I think also just on the, on the UK side, I think one thing that's been quite remarkable that hasn't been pushed up until this point is that Ireland and the EU's position on the question of the border has been so kind of incoherent this entire time, yet they've never really been properly challenged on it. So mm. they say that we need this backstop um, because we've got to avoid a hard border at all costs. By the way, also no deal would result in a hard border, yet by sticking to this very controversial part of the withdrawal agreement that effectively made a hard border more likely. Similarly, this claim that no deal will definitely lead to a hard border and infrastructure and targets for, you know, militants, etc. When actually pushed on this in January, Michel Barnier himself said that we're not putting up a hard border at any time and we'd find ways around it, we'd find technical <laughs> solutions, which is precisely what Brexiteers have been saying and being, you know, had the word unicorn shouted back at them all yeah. the way through the last couple of years. So I think it's, it's a pretty depressing state of affairs for Anglo-Irish relations, but also just whilst it's definitely clear that Ireland have been kind of weaponised by the EU and the Irish ish the Irish border issue has been weaponised against um, Brexit, it's also remarkable how much they've been able to get away with because our own political class mm. here, which has always been the main problem with Brexit, yeah. have been incapable of, you know, pushing the argument and just calling out these ridiculous inconsistencies. And that uh, that's absolutely right. And that is the broader story of the whole EU problem, which is not simply that it is this foreign empire uh, stamping its boot on individual nation states, although that does 
does happen, uh, but that it's the complicity of our own political class in the whole process mm. of outsourcing our sovereignty and our lawmaking and other aspects of uh, political life to the European Union. So uh, the, the way in which the backstop has emerged as this thing which says, stop, you can't go all the way on Brexit, is testament to how much our political class has completely kowtowed to the idea that sovereignty must be diluted and, and given away. Um, so it's another reminder of the most uh, useful lesson that's been learned over the past three years, which is that the real problem with a lack of democracy, the real attack on democracy is at home. Mm. And that's where we've got to focus our attentions. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher and more. And if your provider allows you to, why not give us a rating and a review while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show. The British royal family has undergone an awakening. This week, Prince Harry took to social media to warn about the dangers of unconscious racism. He also jetted off to Italy to deliver a lecture on climate change in his bare feet. Meanwhile, his wife, Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex, has guest edited the September edition of British Vogue. It celebrates 15 female forces for change, most of whom are models and actresses, but they also tick the right diversity boxes and campaign on woke causes like body image, mental health and climate change. Tom, what's your take on these uh, new uh, woke royals? <laughs> um, well, it's you know it's been a while in the coming. We've seen for, we've seen for quite a long time that the younger royals in general, you know, not just Harry and, and Meghan, but also William and Kate, have been very interested in various kind of woke causes. Started with their Heads Together campaign a few years mm. ago, which, as far as I could tell, largely constituted Harry going out giving interviews in which he talked about the struggles of having a shit day. It was very very vague, <laughs> but nevertheless, it signalled to the world that they cared terribly. Um, but more recently, especially as Meghan Markle has come on the scene. Um, they've kind of doubled down, particularly Harry and Meghan, on these causes. So as part of this whole recent kind of flurry of news stories, particularly centred around the um, British Vogue edition that um, Meghan Markle has edited, it's just like a grab bag of all of the most kind of like ridiculous woke opinions that are slightly ridiculous. And you almost feel like they're not particularly deeply held. People just say them to look good. And what's it's so um, interesting as well, the kind of um, the backlash to the backlash, if you like, because there's been a lot of people who have called this out, either because it's monarchists who don't like the fact that the royal family is becoming too much basically like an kind of A-list celebrity set and they feel mm. like it's tawdry and unpleasant. And also just from people who don't like being lectured to from the highborn, as it were. But there's this response, which is this um, insistence that the criticism of Meghan in particular mm. is effectively just racist, even though yeah. I have not seen any example in the mainstream media of any kind of explicit racial animus whatsoever. I mean, people just seem to think that because they're criticising her, it must be because of the fact that she is biracial. That can be the only um, reason. And even in particular, kind of left-wing, nominally Republican people rushing to her defence. And I think it's just a really good example of something we've talked about a lot on this podcast and throughout Spikes in general, which is the way in which identity politics can be a fantastic cover for real privilege. You know, that that word privilege gets thrown around a lot in kind of identitarian circles. But you do find yourself in a perverse situation where a woman who was already of you know of very considerable means married into the royal family is someone who has this huge wealth um 
partly at the expense of the taxpayer, as well as esteem and influence just on the basis of that marriage that he's married into, that we have to almost erect this force field around her because of the fact that she has some claim to victimhood, an incredibly yeah. tenuous one at that, given the fact that no one really is having that kind of a pop at her. So it's been hilarious in some respects, just because some of the kind of bullshit that these two people have particularly been coming out with. But I think the response to it and the kind of backlash to the backlash was one of the most revealing things about it. Well, one of the things that I find fascinating is is the way that identity politics um, and wokeness of this kind is considered to be left-wing and progressive. And yet, as we've discussed many times um, on the podcast before, it sits very well with, not only with, um, you know, basically capitalism, but the fact is that with with these woke royals, you can see that these this kind of politics sits well with feudalism mm. and feudal structures like the monarchy, you know, just how unprogressive does a set of ideas and politics have to be if it can be embraced by the literal monarchs? Mm. That, that's what I was thinking. The, the, all woke people should be very concerned that wokeness lends itself so well to the, um, you know, the rejuvenation of the monarchy in essence and mm. the, the, a rediscovery of purpose, particularly among the younger royals. Um, and I think Tom's absolutely right about the, the, the really grating way in which any criticism of Meghan Markle or the Duchess of Sussex or whatever bullshit title she's been given by the <laughs> aristocracy, um, the way that's all described as racist is so cynical and censorious and explicitly designed to protect her from the normal um, criticisms and provocations that all public figures ought to be subjected to. Um, and it's like, you know, in the past, criticising the Queen was considered treasonous and now criticising Meghan Markle is considered racist. It's the same dynamic, this desire to protect these God-given or celebrity-given figures <laughs> from criticism. Um, but I think, you know, I, I, I think there's a serious point beneath all this. Beyond the celebrification, which the kind of old-style monarchists really hate, and beyond the ins and outs of whether Meghan should be editing Vogue or not, there is a broader argument about the shift of monarchical style away from the treatment of us as subjects towards the treatment of us effectively as patients. And you can mm. really see that with Harry's and William's mental health campaign, where they now, they relate to the people of Britain as patients, as mental health patients. That's how they speak to us. And, you know, through this woke politics, which is a very dictatorial form of politics, always trying to educate people to be better and to stop being racist and to cleanse their minds of these kind of inherited prejudices. And you think to yourself... It was bad enough when we were subjects of the monarchy, which was always a pretty naff situation to be in. Um, but to be patients of the monarchy is even worse. So you have this bizarre situation where the woke monarchy is presented to us as modernization, but could well be a more prejudiced and patronizing form of royal governance than we had before. And I think all the, uh, the attempts to protect Meghan Markle from criticism really remind me there was a, there was a lord, a peer in the early 1960s who published an article about the Queen, a very, very famous article in which he said she is out of touch. She's a snob. She sounds ridiculous. She's mm. patronizing. She's stiff. And it caused this massive, massive stir. It was really well dramatized in a, in an episode in The Crown. Um, caused a massive stir and eventually led to reform of the royal family. But the establishment attacked this peer viciously for daring to criticize the Queen. And I think, um, those criticizing Meghan Markle now are actually doing a similar service to democracy in the sense of raising really important questions about the role that she's playing and about the role that the new monarchy will play. 
the solution, of course, is to abolish the monarchy. It's an absolutely perverse, ridiculous, archaic institution. And they should have no role in public life whatsoever. And if she doesn't want to be a public figure, there's a really simple solution. Get rid of the monarchy and she can go back to being uh, an actress. I think it's interesting as well, just seeing the similarity between a kind of old school monarchical kind of view of society as well as this kind of new woke idea. Because it does rely on this sense that you do need people who are kind of above hoi polloi, Mm. who are above us and our grubby opinions who can give us some kind of like structure or in this case kind of moral instruction it's a very similar kind of dynamic you know the amount of um excitement that the original engagement engendered the fact that there was a front page comment piece on the guardian newspaper nominally a republican left liberal newspaper um welcoming this and saying that you know um you know forevermore no one can say that to be non-white is not to be british and all the rest of it and you think this is basically rehabilitating the idea that the royal family represent us are of us are to give mm. us leadership and instruction and all these kinds of things it's fascinating how no one kind of realizes their own kind of cognitive distance in relation <laughs> to this particular um issue i think it's interesting because the argument at the moment is that megan's being singled out that yeah. seems to be the main thing you know you had kate middleton guest edited the huffington post or i think it's fair to say did a much more kind of anodyne job than Meghan Markle has done with Vogue, you know, she's mm. basically put herself in the story in every single page of it, more or less. But nevertheless, that seems to be the argument. I don't think that quite stacks up. She has done this kind of celebrity royal thing on a far bigger scale and really yeah. asserted herself, made herself central to the story. I think that's why it's engendered more criticism. But at the same time, I think it is worth remembering that Meghan Markle is not single-handedly celebrifying the monarchy. You know, mm. this really started with Princess Diana. Yeah. There's that kind of great irony in a sense that uh, at the time when, you know, Diana you know split with Charles and became this big tabloid story and was really enjoying the limelight and doing charity work very ostentatiously all the rest of it monarchists were really concerned that she was going to kind of ruin the monarchy but in a weird kind of way she gave them a bit of a lease on life they had a new way to relate to the public in this more kind of mass culture type of age they had a new kind of sheen to them now that kind of the old sort of mystical status of the monarchy no longer held but i think what megan in particular has demonstrated is that if you're trying to sustain this kind of historical anachronism purely on the basis of celebrity celebrities go up and celebrities go down so i think if there's anything (laughs) that's a bit of hopefulness in this, despite the fact most people in Britain are quite fond of the monarchy, is that the further they go down this road, I think it actually does demonstrate the weaker the institution is. You're listening to the Spiked podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. But if you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com and clicking the big red donate button in the top right corner. Mario Lopez, former star of Saved by the Bell and now host of Access Hollywood, has caused outrage with his comments on transgender children. Lopez said that it was dangerous for adults to allow kids as young as three to choose their own gender, but he's since been forced to apologise. Brendan, you've written about this this week. What are your thoughts? (laughs) I think it's so depressing. I mean, he was absolutely right in what he said. In fact, he could have gone even further, but he's absolutely right to say that it's it's bad parenting if your three-year-old 
son comes up to you and says, I'm a girl, and you go along with it. That's just bad parenting. But of course, the idea these days is that it's bigotry, it's transphobia, it's hatred if you say that to your child. So he was absolutely right to say it's wrong and in fact can be quite dangerous to cave in to children who have gender confusions and then to set them on this kind of fatalistic path towards gender reassignment or sex change or whatever it's called these days he was right to say all that stuff and then and he he only said it a month ago and it Mm. didn't cause a massive fuss when he first said it but of course what's happened recently is that he's got this new gig at access hollywood Mm. and presumably pressure has been put on the producers of that show and there's been this massive twitter storm and so he has recanted his views it's it's a very religious spectacle where he has basically been denounced as a heretic he's been dragged into the public square i.e social media and forced to renounce himself and to publicly flagellate himself for having held blasphemous views on gender fluidity transgenderism has become in my view a really dangerous problematic ideology i think it's very destructive for individuals it's given rise to all sorts of body modification of perfectly healthy bodies it's given rise to all sorts of confusions and even self-hatred among young people uh, in growing numbers of young girls in particular and it is um creating an incredibly censorious climate in which even saying men can't become women is now a speech crime Mm. as people like the canadian feminist megan murphy have discovered she was banned from twitter for saying men aren't women um so this is the perverse situation we find ourselves in it's an incredibly orwellian situation where you have to tell a lie you have to go along with the lie that trans women are women even though we all know they are male and that every single cell in their body is male You have to go along with that lie or you'll be punished and ridiculed and censored. It's a, it's a really strange hysterical fundamentalist climate. And I'm wondering when the big pushback is going to come. It's also worth remembering as well. This is an interview that you gave, you know, a month ago or something Mm, like this. So again, it's a thing that, oh, someone's kind of popped up into our Twitter feeds. Let's look and see if he's ever said anything (laughs) transphobic. You know, it's this really, really weird. Um, way in which the, almost the morality police set in as soon as someone um, moves into the public eye. It's interesting as well the way this stuff was written up. Stephen Knight of the Godless Spellchecker podcast pointed this out. There was one Yahoo headline that said, Mario Lopez, colon, it's dangerous for parents to support transgender kids, which is not even really no. what he said. What, no. It's a very uh, measured, very kind of commonsensical, if your three-year-old comes to you and says they're feeling this way, maybe don't decide right then and there that they've definitely got gender dysphoria and an mm. issue and it needs to be dealt with. And one of the things that I think is so shocking and interesting about the way in which this discussion is policed is that this is by far from a settled topic. I mean, that's really underselling it. This is something in which you basically have a very small amount of people um, in politics and in the media who have decided what is true and the vast majority of everyone else thinking that that's ridiculous um, and kind Mm. of made up and yet there is no recognition of that fact. Even actually within people who run gender identity services and stuff, there is still fierce debates about how much you should assume, you know, particularly around the issue of transgender kids, how seriously you should take their concerns mm. that maybe they were born in the wrong body. What is the right way to deal with them? Recently, there's been all of this trouble at the Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation, which famously has this gender identity development service, which has been working with um, young children in particular. There's been a lot of controversy. One of their governors, Marcus Evans, actually stepped down in February, um, saying that internally there was a refusal to recognise that there were concerns with parents saying that kids were being fast-tracked through certain treatments unnecessarily. There was also a report, an internal report by um, Dr. David Bell, who was 
basically made the point that the service was failing to fully consider other factors, psychological factors, social yeah. factors, yeah. you know, have they been abused? Have they suffered a bereavement? Are they autistic? All of these things which could um, lead to a child who is going through a very different set of issues, thinking that gender is and sex is really the problem. So the idea that, um, again, anyone who strays from a very hard line on the kind of trans or trans kids issue is aberrant and weird and hateful and needs to be crushed at all costs isn't just um, ridiculous on the face of it. It doesn't even do justice to the discussion that's going on within the people who deal very much with these services. So I just, I just don't understand how the most kind of hardline position in this has managed to maintain, you know, this level of obedience from the media and politics and everyone else. It, it amazes me that they've been able to do that. Yeah, no, it's it, it's quite extraordinary, and and particularly the the rows going on at the Tavistock Clinic. You know, it, mm. I've, from the people I've spoken to, who are, you know who work in psychiatry and and have dealt with um, you know gender dysphoric patients, there there is almost like a kind of fifty fifty split. Mm. Um, there are people who believe in this theory that um, gender identity that children and and adults present should be affirmed, and then there are other people who believe that these things need to be explored on a deeper level. And it was interesting as well to see uh, recently a, a study came out that suggested that some of the puberty blocking drugs that have been given to children are actually increasing the likelihood of quite serious dark thoughts and, you know, suicidal tendencies and things mm-hmm. like that, which is, of course, the opposite of what they're supposed to do. A lot of parents a lot are, are under pressure. A lot of people in schools are under pressure. A lot of people who work in these services are under pressure to affirm people's gender and give them puberty blockers and things like that on the basis that if they don't these children are likely to commit suicide it could well be the case that the opposite is true that we're encouraging suicide by um pushing people down down this path but it's absolutely astonishing to me that these discussions are just simply not happening in the open you know it's very rare for for people to be able to actually make these points without being labelled as as transphobic. Of course, it's potentially dangerous. It might not be dangerous, but we don't know. We don't know until we have this these discussions properly. Yeah, I think that's the, da- that's the really dangerous element, not necessarily what individual parents do, although I do think lots of individual parents make the wrong choice in relation to their supposedly trans kids. But the, the really dangerous thing is the restriction of discussion and the, the, the protection of this issue from any kind of criticism or open debate, because that means things will happen that probably shouldn't be happening. But because we haven't had the free, frank debate we ought to be having, they carry on happening. My view is that it, we're living through a moment of hysteria. And I do think it, it has the elements of hysteria. The growing number of young kids who are falling into this ideology or this cultish behavior, um, the way in which, you know, young people, if a young person despises their own body Mm. to such an extent that, you know, pubescent girls are binding their breasts or young boys are dreaming of the day when they can finally be castrated in essence, that's really incredibly unhealthy for them, for those young people. And so what does society do? It absolutely affirms their unhealthy behavior and says, fine, let's go ahead and do this. And you think that is completely and utterly the wrong thing to do, in my opinion. A better thing to do would be to encourage girls to be happy about the development of their bodies, to encourage boys, especially gay boys, to be completely accepting of their so-called feminine traits, rather than saying, right, take these drugs, take these hormones, and when you hit the age of 18, you can have... um, life-changing surgery. I think that's so destructive. I do think, I hope, we will get to a 
place in about 10 or 15 years time when we will look back on this period and we won't believe what happened. And we won't believe that people thought trans women were real women. And we won't believe that people were censored for raising questions. I I, I really hope that's the situation we'll get to. But what we need right now, and this is why the Mario Lopez thing is so depressing, we really do need more criticism and more debate and more frankness and more strong opinion. Otherwise, uh, things that probably shouldn't be happening will carry on happening and more kids will become depressed because they will be told by society that they are right to hate their bodies mm. and that their bodies can be changed. You've been listening to The Spike Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, why not give us a rating, a review, or even a donation? We'll be back next week, but for more great Spiked content, just go to spiked-online.com.